John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 388.JL0112, certificate number 27612, Dutch Elm Disease. I speak for the trees. Let them grow. Let them grow. What's your relationship to the forest, Ken? I know. I think of you as kind of a forest creature. I am uh, the young prince of the forest, like Bambi. Mm-hmm. As a young boy, I liked to, to gamble and frolic there. Did but you? Eventually, my antlers grew, and I took it over and made it my own. Were your parents Were your parents killed in a devastating forest fire? Uh, they were, but that's actually unrelated. Oh, I see. Oh, completely different, different forest, different time. <laughs> uh, I love the forest. I was uh, I was walking in. You know, the trees are starting to bud here. We're recording this in the spring. Yeah. The trees are starting to bud here in our beautiful northwest forest, and I was walking through some woods not far from my house, and uh, I was watching the Douglas firs do this thing they do in the northwest where they'll kind of shimmy mm. in wind, yeah. and it'll look like they're dancing, kind of, they're doing like a slow motion hula, and I was thinking about how as much as I love the less deciduous forests of the northeast, their trees do not dance the way our tall evergreens do. I feel very at peace in the forest. And it's one of the things I really remember about coming home to Seattle in the summers when we lived overseas and cut in a, a large treeless Asian city. It's just watching those big Western hemlocks and Douglas firs and cedars kind of swaying like that in a, in an evening breeze. Uh, it's unforgettable. Yeah. I also, as you know, I'm a forest, uh, a forest dweller, a wood elf, that's right. Uh, my my uh, my new house is on a um, is on a piece of property that has a lot of mature trees and you know like uh, quite a few evergreens, big big cedars and and firs, uh, but also a lot of big leaf maples and and mature deciduous trees. For futurelings that probably are trees, we don't need to explain the difference between. Deciduous trees, which lose their leaves uh, in the fall, and evergreen trees, which have various needles and other kinds of... Those are the two races of our listeners. The two races. They're uh, deciduous and evergreen. They're super racist about the coniferous. (laughs) And they they live in different cities. But what we don't have experience of you and I growing up in the Northwest are the, the, uh, the hardwood forests of the East Coast. And a lot, uh, 
and we can be forgiven for not having that experience, both because we don't live on the East Coast, but also because the the hardwood forests uh, in the Northeast and in the Southeast are uh, now just a, a shadow of their former selves. No one of our generation uh, can appreciate what the 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 eastern forests and in and in and in Europe also what the what the hardwood forests of the recent past were like they built this country without those hardwoods and you know in some cases the food, like food stuff they provided i mean that's that's what led those areas to be settled but unfortunately it was that settlement that then pretty much deforested huge huge swaths of it so thanks thanks for those hardwoods guys well you know the the um the hardwood forests were not decimated by logging or fires or um misuse we didn't uh we didn't hump the trees into non-existence did you say hump or hunt <laughs> hump we didn't bring we didn't bring Neither. i guess we didn't do either we didn't to bring my knowledge pigs that dug them up no, in fact, uh, the hardwood forests of the United States were destroyed by that that patient enemy, the fungus. Uh, and as recently as the as the twentieth century, in most in some cases, cases uh, until even the even my father's and mother's lifetimes, even in even your father's and mother's lifetimes. The hardwood forests of the of the east east eastern states, I guess, every state to the east of the Appalachian Mountains, and also this is true in in Canada and in Europe. Um, those forests were intact and were devastated by fungal infections that were brought from uh, faraway places as part of what became a kind of, uh, you know, the early international trade in, uh, in wood and wood products. So, uh, they were safe as long as we weren't getting things from other continents that might have beetles and fungi in them. That's right. But as soon as we started getting things that might have beetles and fungi in them, boy, those beetles and fungi had a hate it. Had beetles a field and fungi, day. beetles and fungi. The, the first, the first tree to suffer was the American chestnut, which once upon a time, not that long ago, comprised over 70% of the trees in American hardwood forests. You could swing from Maine to Michigan on the branches of American chestnut trees and never once touch the ground. That's right. And they produced chestnuts, which were a valuable foodstuff for, for animals and humans they produce chestnuts every year not like oaks that only drop acorns sometimes like they're a reliable food you can sock away and wonderful wood for building wonderful wood for fuel wonderful wood for everything that you could use wood for and uh at one point there were estimated over four billion chestnut trees in north america well surely that's enough that they could withstand anything well sadly no what? I'm afraid to report to you, Ken, that the chestnut blight, which is a fungus and an imported one, got upon our chestnut trees and lay waste to them, devastating our forests, devastating our people. 
one tear just rolled down John's cheek as I threw, as I threw a piece of litter at him. Now I'm afraid that these forests are. I have no conception of them, and I know of them only from uh, from my mother's reports of how different the world looks to her now than it did when she was a child. Or just reading Thoreau, you know, like uh, these these majestic chestnut trees are pretty much lost to us now, except in you know Longfellow poems about them. Right. Uh, And and what does your mom say? Well, my mom's experience, and I think this is um, this is true for most of the urban populations of North America and Europe. Uh, Her experience was less that the chestnut trees um, were devastated by a blight because the chestnuts comprised the trees of the, of a forest. Uh, If you, if you were to find a stand of forest or if you were to fly over a mountain range, you were looking down at chestnuts. And so for instance, what people go to now to see the, uh, see the leaves change in the Northeast peepers, you know, that would have been true across the whole East coast. You wouldn't need to go to Vermont to watch the leaves change, but what made a greater impact in her life. And I think in a lot of people's lives was the American elm tree that was devastated in a couple of different times in the 20th century by Dutch elm disease, because the elm tree was used as an urban tree. The elm tree was a, was a tall and fast growing and vase shaped a uh, deciduous tree that was used to line the big boulevard in town. And the elm tree Chestnuts was, would be too tall, I guess, but, uh, but elm trees are the right shape for the right shape planting. and just sort of a, a, a and a, uh, a decorative tree that dances in the wind. Now perhaps it doesn't hula. It doesn't hula, but, um, but they were used, they were used much more prominently. And I think they were probably hardier in an urban environment mm-hmm. so that, Elm trees were, and, and also, you know, a native tree that, that were, that populated the forest, but, um, but wh- they were the most prominent, large, you know, big leaf shade tree of, of American cities and of the, you know, the, the American East and also true throughout Europe. There were, uh, at the at beginning of the 20th century, there were 30,000 elms in Paris um, elms were the main tree in Amsterdam. They were 5,200 American cities have an elm street. Right. And there's a reason why it was the street that was lined with elms. That's and, why they called it that. And Freddy Krueger's, um, right. It's not just his nightmare. It's not just, it's our collective nightmare. It's a nightmare on my street. On all to, streets. To coin a phrase. Uh, these were, uh, elm trees were, were prominent throughout, uh, throughout the United Kingdom. Um, like elms were the primary tree that made cities shady and ask a city beautiful. kid to draw a tree. Like that's their platonic ideal of a tree right. is an elm. And there's a, there's some, you know, there's a lot of suggestion that elm disease and these funguses that are fungi as our, as our listeners prefer, um, Is that right? I think, have, they, have they all risen up with uh, one voice? I can't decide which which of our futurelings we're mocking at any given time, but they're vulnerable to uh, to a form of fungus 
the it's a it's a wide category of fungus called the sac fungus. Oh, so it's not just one species. Like, well, there are a lot of sac fungi. So, for instance, like morels and truffles, but also yeasts. I mean, they're all sac fungi, and they're all bad for elms, or at least a no, lot of them are. No, oh, okay. but the 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 um, so the the fung the fungi that infect elm trees. They there there are several varieties of it, and they're all part of the Ophiostoma group of sac fungi. The first one to arrive in North America was called Ophiostoma ulmi. Ulmi meaning elms. Ulm, ulmi Ed, meaning Edward elms. James Ulmus is Spanish for Edward James Elms. That's right. Ulm, Germany is just Elm, Germany. Oh, that's true, huh? Yeah. I didn't think about that. Named after what presumably were all the beautiful elms in Ulm. Ulmer fud just means <laughs> Elmer fud. Uh-huh. Uh, every time you pause to think of a word and you say Ulm, you're just, it's just a, a Norman that's Elm. My, that's my mantra. Ulm. Um. Uh, it arrived in America in the early part of the 20th century, and initially it came in a shipment of wood from Europe that was meant to be used as veneer in, in furniture. Was, did it come from the Netherlands? Is that why... Originally, it was identified in the Netherlands because it was infecting elms in the Netherlands too. Oh, and the way so Dutch elm disease is maybe not Dutch. Not Dutch. It, the you know it's it's always a question. Did it, it come from Asia? How is it? How is it being sort of? Uh, what is its origin point, and how is it promulgated? I had no idea until it became a political football recently that the Spanish flu of 1918 not Spanish. did not originate in Spanish. They were just the ones that weren't covering up the deaths, right? So <laughs> when it was in the newspaper, it was like, wow, this big flu in Spain. Uh, meanwhile, ravaging the entire world. There's some theory that it like originated in the mid American Midwest yeah. and, and then got to Spain. And that it, that it originated in a, in a, uh, a military base. We dodged right? a bullet there by covering up those deaths. That would well, have been I'll American say. flu. I'll what say. a, what a black eye. American flu. That's not what you want. Who would, who would immigrate here and, and buy our blenders? American flu should be the name for just some diarrhea you get from Taco Bell. Uh, I've got the American flu. Gross. Oh. I think that is what we say. <laughs> though, though, the way the the fungus works, the way it kills an elm tree is it in um in a way kind of similar to the coronavirus in that it triggers an immune response from the tree that ends up overreacting uh, and killing the tree. So it's like the, lupus or something. What a tree does when it's being attacked is it, um, you know... It, like you, by orcs? By orcs. When a tree is attacked by orcs... It marches on Isengard. <laughs> what it does... <laughs> I don't actually throom, don't, throom, throom, What does throom. a tree do, actually, when it's being attacked? Because they can't... I mean, they, they don't have metabolisms. What right? happens is a tree secretes sap, and, it, uh, and the sap plugs up the damage that whatever the the disease or in insect is inflicting. So upon sap the tree. has an immune property as well as and, whatever circulatory. Stuff and it sap does. is, uh, is that's why it's glue like, that's why it's sticky. That's right. It's also antibacterial. Like sap is kind of amazing stuff. Um, but when a tree, uh, when a tree overreacts, right, what it, what it is doing is it's actually sealing up the channels that a tree uses underneath its, you know, in its, Cadmium. It's cambium cad- and cambium. xylem and phloem. Right. And the flow from root to to leaf and back again, uh, it, 
the the sap will go in and block that passage. This is just like when you're sick and your immune system makes more mucus, but then you get a stuffy nose. It's exactly what it is. A tree can actually strangle itself. It just dies of a snuff of a stuffy nose by 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 plugging up by clogging all of its vascular system. Wow. Now, in the case of Dutch elm disease, it's made um, it's made worse by the fact that it is transmitted via bark beetles and bark beetles are a whole kind of type of beetle. And there are many, many varieties and they live underneath the bark in a tree and they, they provide a necessary service as so many critters do when, when the world is working perfectly, but somehow they get fungus. What happens is the beetles normally a, a bark beetle will live in a dying tree and the bar, the bark beetle, you know, breeding beneath the surface of the bark is part of the, you know, the transformation of a dead snag into eventually a fallen snag and then sawdust, right? I mean, beetles are playing a role in the ecosystem, in the the cycle of life of a Somebody's tree. Somebody's got to eat trees. I don't want to do it. Beetles will also, bark beetles will get under the, uh, get under the skin of, uh, of, you know, teacher trees and other adult trees that that can get irritated by them, uh, and they can live inside of uh, un- under the bark of healthy trees, and you know, and and can do damage to trees. But in the case of the Dutch elm disease, the bark beetle, when a, when the fungus creates a, an immune reaction in the tree, and the tree secretes sap, the sap can get on a bark beetle and transmit the fungus. So as the uh, beetle it just goes to a different tree or, and within the tree, this is a perfect analogy for stuff. He knows again, I sneeze on somebody and just a little droplet of my sap is what spreads the fungus or in this case, coronavirus. So the, the, the beetles then end up as they, and, and it's really the beetles that bring, uh, that bring the Dutch elm disease initially, uh, in that initial shipment of wood, it it was it was beetles that were under the bark that escaped once they got here. Meet the beetles. Here they are. Ah. <laughs> she loves you, but in this case, she loves the delicious sap of the American elm. Do they eat the sap? No, they just they're just getting it stuck on them because that sap the sap has to be sticky. Yeah, and then the beetles are tunneling under the bark and they're just spreading the spreading the fungus everywhere they go. I know when the first chestnut started to die, uh, you know, people just thought, well, there's billions of these, we're going to be fine. And and when the blight started to spread, they thought, well, we'll just they tried social distancing. Basically, they tried to create fire breaks, and it turns out it doesn't matter because beetles or or whatever pollen whatever is carrying the the vector around does not it you know it doesn't pass twig twig to twig well in the united states there was a recognition of how devastating this dutch elm disease was uh, it it you know it first sort of was identified and arrived on our shores in the 1920s but it was uh, it, people understood how it was transmitted and how devastating it was and there was a, a concentrated effort to contain it by sort of sanitary felling of disease trees, um, the way that you know, if it, if if it if it would manifest in a in a large branch of an elm, you could cut that branch off and 
and burn the wood and contain it. Just like a nursing home. I mean, you don't burn it, but you stop people from visiting it. You stop, you, yeah, right. You do containment. You do social distancing of trees. I mean, trees. you could burn it, but I don't recommend it. And in New York City, they managed to contain uh, Dutch elm disease all through the 1930s by this rigorous practice of containment and social distancing. Contact tracing. That's right. Of and, beetles. And they, uh, they were successful in containing Dutch elm disease until World War II, at which point the demand for resources and people's attention shifted. They still have the, the work, the work uh, force anymore? To yeah, they just were doing other things. and they We figured, had to choose Nazis or bark beetles. And also, I think they'd been so successful, it's easy to think like, well, we'll just leave the, this alone for a little bit while we, yeah, while we fight, the, uh, fight the enemy and we'll be back soon. There's definitely an analogy for that in our day, except instead of fighting the enemy, it's just people wanting to go to macaroni grill. That's right. Well, I need my haircut, Ken, and, I, and my, my roots are showing. I need my haircut so bad. Yeah, speaking of trees, your roots are showing. But as soon, as, soon as uh, New York stopped being vigilant about the spread of Dutch elm, it went, uh, it took off across America. Oh, so it was not, it had, it had been contained in New York. It, there, were, there weren't really big other outbreaks? No, there were. I mean, places like uh, Hartford, Connecticut. I mean, it was on the East Coast and it had done, a, uh, it had done, it had devastated the elm populations uh, of several cities. But there was also real hard work being done to contain it, mm-hmm. contain it to the East Coast. But it, when it spread to other cities, it was coming from that initial Northeast. Yeah. Wow. And by uh, by 1950, Dutch elm disease had arrived in Detroit, and by 1960, it was in Chicago, and you could you could you could watch it march across the United States. And this was the era that my mom lived in. She was born in 1934, and lived in Ohio. And in 1950, when Dutch elm disease arrived in Detroit, she was in Western Ohio, right? So she was a teenager. And she still lived in a city with an elm street that had beautiful elms. And by the time she was in college, uh, she watched the elms in her town die and then watched the elms in the neighboring town die. You could watch it go from town to town. Yeah, and people have an emotional connection to the trees on their street and in their backyards. And it's not exactly like losing somebody you know but you do grieve especially when it's it's so inexorable and you know it's going to be the one next door next and scientists and biologists and botanists were all working overtime trying to come up with a solution right there were so many efforts being made to eradicate the beetles to inoculate the trees eradicate to come up the with, beetles is a pretty good album name yeah eradicate the beetles are you kidding me why is there not an album called that i'm gonna hell, let me write that down Happiness is a warm gun. Um, because of the because of the nature of the infection, it it is pop it is possible to inoculate trees. It just uh, didn't turn out to work very well. By uh, inoculate, do you do the same thing? You you you, you, you inject get, the tree with the a, tr- some kind of a sort of a, a weakened emasculated form. version. Yeah. A weakened form of the fungus and try to get the tree to build up an immune response. Uh, in the, in the fifties and sixties, the brand new super exciting, uh, insecticide DDT was the preferred method that, um, that municipalities were using to com- combat the beetle to kill the beetles. 
And it was really DDT as used to combat Dutch Elm disease that inspired Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. So it was, uh, it was, it was trying to fight Dutch Elm disease that sparked the American environmental movement. I have some vague idea that DDT was actually, I mean, was it working? Was it, was it holding the line against Dutch Elm disease? Because I know that DDT has actually started to be used again, I think in certain limited areas because it, nobody, even Rachel Carson admits it's probably a really good insecticide. It was a really good insecticide. And a lot of the pushback that's coming now about her book and, and the anti DDT thing was that, was the suggestion that a lot of that, a lot of the bird deaths and oh, it, it thinned eggshells, right? Thinning of eggshells was actually a result of mercury poisoning and lead poisoning <gasps> that was in the soil from other industrial processes. It's our guy from the leaded gas episode again. Now, yeah. he, now he's killing baby birds. Leaded gas is the one bad. It thing. all comes back. Everything to else is fine. Well, it probably means that everything else is bad. The loss of leaded gas has been the only thing that's gone right in America over the last 50 years. And that's why <laughs> crime stats are down and the baby birds are happier. Uh, th- this is also, uh, uh, they've done a wonderful job and they, they did uh, starting back then in controlling Dutch elm disease in isolated locations, like for, not isolated, I'm sorry, in in locations that they could because it's very resource intensive to monitor a stand of elm trees. They've succeeded in doing it in the in the mall in Washington DC. Oh, those, those are, are all still elms? American elms, but it's because the mall has a, a dedicated staff of people whose only job is to keep those elm trees alive. And so they've managed to keep, you know, beautiful elms in Washington DC, but it's too resource intensive for most places. Other places in um North America that have retained their stands of elms are places like Winnipeg, which if you've ever been to Winnipeg, I have not. uh, Winnipeg is like kind of a marvelous little uh, Midwestern city in Canada, but it is surrounded on all sides by 100 million miles of nothing. So here's Winnipeg and it's, it's really, it's like a tropical island except in totally frozen. Except for the weather. Freezing Canada. But then in what ways is it like a tropical It's really not at all, (laughs) except that Winnipeg itself, when you're there, it feels like Milwaukee. You know, it has, it's- It's an oasis. It's wonderful architecture. It's wonderful tree-lined streets. It's a very, it's a cultural uh, oasis for for its region. Have you seen the Guy Madden movie about- uh about his childhood in Winnipeg. Mm-mm. My Win- I recommend My Winnipeg. It's kind of a just a phantasmagorical mix of fact and fiction about mid-century Winnipeg. It's a super neat place, but it's surrounded on all sides by um by the steppes of Canada, right? It's just like endless treeless nothingness. So Winnipeg still has 200,000 elm trees. Cuz the Beatles can't get there. Boy, what the Beatles can't, you know, they're, they're they uh, they couldn't walk there, right? And and they've done a good enough job of keeping like veneer out of there. Well, we can't we can't let the Beatles know. I hope they're not listening to this. Shh! Don't let the Beatles know. ASMR. Uh, there are places in Europe that still have uh, like Amsterdam and The Hague have wonderful stands of elm trees, and so much so that they advertise themselves as the elm. Cities. It's probably the same as the National Mall, right? They just throw manpower. At, yeah, you know. right. I mean, you can. Um, Amsterdam is such a cultivated environment. Like 
you know, they run a, a fine tooth comb through that city and have for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Although they can't keep hippies out. I don't think they're really trying they that hard. They can't even really get the, keep it's the bikes like, out of the canals. It's like Dutch Elm disease. <laughs> they're, they're, they tried to keep all the hippies in one particular district and it's, it's working out okay. Uh, unfortunately for the United States, in the so Dutch elm disease was kind of ravaging the country, but you, it was not even really the most virulent form. Uh, the uh, Ophiostoma ulmi was a kind of mild form of elm disease, Uh-oh. and in the nineteen sixties, a extremely virulent form of it called Ophiostoma novo. Ulmi arrived from Japan and it, this is like the Godzilla mutated. Yeah. It swept across the United States like a, like a raging firestorm. Also killing elms, killing elms, uh, killing elms right and left such that people that can remember the 1970s can remember a time when you just watched the, the trees of a city just evaporate. And that's sad. Urban tree cover is important. When we, when we look at pictures of Seattle from a hundred years ago, we kind of often have the opposite experience because when they built Seattle, what they did was come to a place where there were like stands of old growth fir that were probably 30 feet around and they were all lumbered. Yay. Let's cut these down. And then they built, uh, they built this Victorian city and when you look at old, you know, like sepia-tinted photographs of Seattle, there are no trees. It's treeless, yeah. It's just house after house after house after house. And you compare those to modern photographs, and now we have these beautiful trees. Uh, but if you look at photographs of Midwestern cities, Eastern cities from 100 years ago, uh, and then compare them to today, it's uh, it, it, it's the opposite effect. All the big, beautiful trees are gone. Yeah. In Seattle, the only trees that die are the ones that are like intentionally poisoned by rich people who want nicer views. Right. Or, or yeah, right. Chopped down by uh, by somebody that just moved in and bought the old house and was like, oh, I don't want any of these trees around here. I heard. I saw um, recently the Seattle Parks Department had discovered somebody had actually drilled a hole in a tree and injected poison multiple times just to kill the tree and, and improve their view. It's, it's clear there's a, there's a, a neighborhood, any one of whose houses could have done it. So the city, um, of the two trees that have been targeted, the city had to cut one down. Uh, they think they can save the other one, but for the one they cut down, they planted four new ones. Yeah. Yeah. Take 50 that. years from now, you'll, you'll see. <laughs> Your kids will be so mad. <laughs> the, uh, the desire to have elm trees and chestnut trees, to have these great old hardwood trees, uh, as you know, it encouraged people botanists to try and find uh, new elm varieties to to um, to plant that are resistant to Dutch elm disease. And there are varieties that are. Um, there are Asian elm trees that uh, that naturally were resistant to some of these pests that you know that ended up being imported pests. But it turned out that there were a few American varieties of elms that were um, that were less vulnerable to the disease, and there were there were great great 
projects to try and breed different varieties of elms, um, the more resistant varieties with the more more beautiful with the qualities you uh, want varieties. Yeah. Uh, but but to what to whatever degree, fungus resistance was not as easily bred into a, into a tree. It turns out it's the same gene. The thing that makes you pretty is the same that makes you fungus resistant. <laughs> just like in life, all these all these beautiful people with their porcelain skin, you know, that they'll just get knocked over by a breeze. It's definitely true for me. I'm uh, I'm beautiful and very much not fungus resistant. <laughs> uh, there are there those have not been a successful projects, but there are some varieties like the Princeton variety of uh, of American elm, the Valley Forge variety that are. Now being it, places are being encouraged to plant these resistant elms because elms are they continue to be vulnerable to this fungus. It's not like it, it's not like any kind of herd immunity resulted from the disease, and and elm trees are be grove immunity by grove the way. immunity right. Uh, elms die and will send up shoots. You know they'll send up uh, they'll they'll try to survive, and those new shoots will last for as long as it takes for the just to get fungus yeah out of the beetles and the fungus to to get after them the one uh in the united kingdom there are elms which have been um not well yeah basically coppiced into hedgerows so the elms have is, is there a bustle in them? There, there is. It's the bustle of them continuing to survive Dutch elm yeah. disease because they never because they're constantly being shaped into hedges, and so whatever part of them gets diseased, you know, kind of gets it's chopped off. off every and, spring. and things that kill one plant, you know, it will send up shoots, but those shoots get intermixed as part of a hedge and. So the hedgerows have survived, but I don't want a hedgerow. Well, I want a big beautiful elm sorry. tree, John. There are plenty of there are plenty of places where elm disease was kept out. Brighton in England still has its still has a lot of its elms. The Isle of Man it was uh is, you know, sequestered. Literally an island unless a bot unless a beetle comes in on a shipment of something. That's right. Uh but most are so most of the elms the elms are not extinct, but most of them are gone. It's a it's a it's a question of in terms of replanting them you can only really count on uh on the ones that are immune to this fungus to survive and that's that's not very many varieties in the case of the chestnut you know the these trees in trying to take over or be replanted as forest trees you know they have to compete with other trees because the way a forest grows there's the first layer of trees and that the that shades the understory which allows that second generation of second type of trees to come up and then they provide an environment that makes that third generation of trees possible mm -hmm. and so to to try and reintroduce a chestnut into that forest ecology and hope that it takes over or the elm tree i mean elm trees being urban trees you can you can Treat them more individually. You don't worry about the ecosystem so much. I know with the chestnuts, they tried to bring in other species that were, you know, Asian species of chestnuts that were already resistant to whatever their blight was. And yeah, you couldn't introduce them to a forest because they didn't grow 
up the same way. They right. would just kind of grow out, and then they'd be under the canopy of an existing forest, and they wouldn't make it. They couldn't compete and yeah. survive, right? And then, and that is kind of the challenge. I mean, a chestnut is a fast-growing tree and is a strong tree, but to um, to put it in the forest. I there I think that they believe that chestnuts can be reintroduced but they just have to be hardy to this blight. There's a third American hardwood tree, the butternut tree, which is a kind of walnut tree, which also was a um was a, you know, a tree that that filled forests and provided food and has uh has r- sort of recently succumbed to beetles and blight. And uh, it's the kind of the third, the the third domino That's in a game of three dominoes. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it just means that any tree is gonna is vulnerable to this. All your hardwoods are gonna be gone. Well, all your hardwoods belong to us. Say the Beatles. <laughs> uh, the idea of this being a uh, a recent phenomenon as a result of the, globalization, the, the global trade of hardwoods has recently gotten a little bit of pushback because scientists have found evidence that there have been elm blights before kind of um, like elm trees were the majority tree in Europe in prehistoric times, you know, Europe was covered from one end to the other with giant forests. Dinosaur streets lined with elms. And there's, there's fossil record of, uh, in 4,000 BC, all the elm trees of Europe all dying at once. I wonder how you can see the blight. I guess they just disappear from the record. You don't see blighted trees. You just see the elms go away. They disappear from the record. And I think traditionally people thought, or, or, or the habit has been for a while to think of that as a, as a, um, the result of not a, not a meteor strike in 4,000 BC, but, uh, the logging of the forests by prehistoric man, right? Like here comes, um, suddenly they invented the saw. That's right. Here, here come the, you know, they, they they got the stirrup and they got, (laughs) they've got their leather shoes stuffed with straw and now they're chopping down all the forests for wood. But that never really made that much sense because there were an awful lot of forest and not that many Utsis. Um, to decimate the entire elm cover of Europe. Right. If each individual Utsis can <laughs> can chop down a tree uh, a week, y- yeah, it's just not going to happen. That's that's an awful lot of Utsis. More than, than there are or were. It happened again in 1000 BC. Um, and I think there is some, there are some fossilized beetles that are bark beetles that they've kind of found in conjunction with the evidence of these these destroying these forest destroying uh, epochs moments in time, and as recently as the early nineteenth century, there there's was staring us right in the face. Um, plenty of written record of smaller outbreaks of elm killing diseases in European cities that I uh, the connection really. That because the diseases at the uh, in those episodes weren't that virulent, um, no one made the connection when it happened a hundred years later. I know with uh, 
The New York Times did a story not too long ago about, about how one hope for the American chestnut might be genetic engineering. Like they haven't had good luck breeding resistant trees together, but they've like found the gene that will make the tree produce some protein that'll break down the acid. Um, and now they've got to prove that this is not, I mean, they've got to prove to government, three government oversight agencies that this is not dangerous. You know, you got to try feeding it to birds and see what happens when the birds' nests are made out of these. And you got to see what happens when it leaches into the water. And, you you know, there's, rightly, there's a lot of testing you have to do. But then you got to persuade all these no, no genetically modified um, plant granola protester types right. that it's better to have new tinkered with chestnuts than no chestnuts at all. And that's a harder sell. Well, and we are creating now, um, what we're, what we're doing is replacing a native species with a, with a replica, with a replica of it. (laughs) And in, in, and in a way, this is something that, that, um, was inevitable, I guess, for the United States, because there is no forest in Europe that isn't the product of human intervention, right? There's no old growth forest in Western Europe. Everything has been it's a farm, basically. manipulated and farmed and crafted. And if you want it to look natural, you can make it look natural. If you want to farm trees, you can farm trees. And in the United States, we've we we're lucky enough to have such a lot of space and so many natural resources that for the last 200 years, we could continue to explore, could continue to discover new forests that were more or less, at least if not pristine, then had only been logged once and then left alone. And so we come to think of the forest as a naturally occurring and wild place rather than one that is um, cared cared for or or built manipulated shaped by man, uh, but that's no longer the case here. There's not really any. I mean, there are places on the Olympic Peninsula. There are there are areas that we have set aside as national parks that are hopefully um, oases, islands, if not old growth, at least. Middle-aged. Middle-aged Starting to play with model railroads growth. But the rest of the forest, the hardwood forests of the East, uh, we can, I mean, we have to begin to think of them as gardens. And we have to begin to to imagine cultivating um, a facsimile of the hardwood forests of 100 or 200 years ago. In the same way that if we're going to take the fences down in the Great Plains and reintroduce buffalo— that that and and maybe re genetically engineer the passenger pigeon, that those things are not, um, uh, they're not any more authentic than if we introduced rhinoceros to the Great Plains. Well, they're a little <laughs> more authentic. I mean, these aren't hologram trees we're talking about. It's the same. It's the same species. Right. We've just tweaked one of the genes to make it hardier. And yeah, there, there will be some effects. And what you want to make sure is that they're good and not bad effects for the, for, exactly, for the garden you want, as you're saying. It's, it's almost exactly analogous to the fact that I just contracted with a company in Milwaukee to manufacture for me some pink ceramic bathroom tile that no one makes anymore, but that was one of their main uh, 
products in 1955, and I'm restoring my 1955 bathroom. You've got your avocado toilet all ready to go. And when when you come into my my house in at in some at some long future date, uh, and you look at my pink bathroom, you're going to think, "Wow, a perfectly preserved 1955 bathroom." <laughs> what you don't realize is that I had to I had to personally contact the great grandson of the guy that made that tile and say. Fire up the old tile plant, Sonny. I will cop to reprinting 80s and 90s concert tees uh, through online t-shirt presses um, just with a facsimile of the old design, you know, finding old graphics and recreating the right color palette. You know, the real trick of uh, that, and this was popular 20 years ago, I had a girlfriend that was in the vintage clothing market, and she said what what, uh, the unscrupulous would do is go to thrift stores and find plain t-shirts from the 70s oh it's like painting uh art forgeries on the correct parchment on the correct correct canvas or whatever and then you could put a screen print on that looked all weathered and screwed up and if you were a vintage t-shirt shopper you would check the label you'd check the fabric and you'd go yeah this is an authentic haynes t-shirt from 1975 i'd go further than that i would say that is authentic now i mean i know it's not You, you you can go back in time and prove that it didn't exist at that uh at that um New Order show or whatever. Right. It's not actually a, a Rolling Stones concert it's not, team. It's not a Husker Du shirt, but uh, it is. It's good enough, right? Well, that's the question. Well, this is a this is something we have not thought of as as far as battling the coronavirus. You know, what if you just got rid of people right. and replaced them with people a, that were invulnerable a, to virus, a slightly more virus resistant replica that otherwise acts just like people do. We are 100% making this show for precisely those people. <laughs> Good job, Replica Humans. You came through. And that concludes Dutch Elm Disease. Entry 388.JL0112. Certificate number 27612. In the omnibus. Uh, future links, should your replica uh, eyeballs still crave social media, you should know that John and I were active in the uh, internet of our era. You could follow the show at Omnibus Project. Uh, individually, we were at Ken Jennings and on John Roderick. You can probably guess which of us used which handles. Wait a minute. Hold on. Slow down. Why don't we tweet from each other's account for a week? April Fool's Day. Every one of my tweets will be, hey, it's me, Ken Jennings. <laughs> follow my friend John Roderick. Hey, it's my new tweet hey, about John Roderick. I'm at John Roderick. <laughs> I smell and my butt smells. Bye. <laughs> that's that's all I would ever do with that power. Poopy, poopy, poopy. I mean, we would definitely have to give each other the keys back because we'd be in this Mexican standoff. Right. Of, we'd, we'd own each other's accounts. Right. I would own your account for sure. Except I, I'd have Owned. a lot more. Fo- I'd have a lot more followers to lose than you would. <laughs> you wouldn't be losing them. You'd just be sharing them with me. That's true. From he who can afford to him who cannot. From each according to his. <laughs> Social media ability to each according not to ability, his social not ability. ability. Oh, I see. Yeah, not, it's not a meritocracy. No. I in, these are um, followers I inherited from my from my parents. Yeah, my my tweets are are darn good tweets. I wonder if this is going to be. We're not. We don't have this issue yet because we're still in the first generation of social media stunted people. Oh, when but your kid inherits your yeah. Tweets? At some point, could you inherit your your dad's follower count? It, it will just be like today's trust fund kids who. Uh, who, you know, they get a million likes for everything they do because they got their parents' followers. Well, so this is interesting. I have a, uh, I have a good friend um, who works for a local 
billionaire. A late local billionaire? A late local billionaire. And said late local billionaire had uh, a uh, an enormous collection of digital media. And upon his death, there was suddenly within his estate a question of what to do with what surely constituted hundreds of millions of dollars worth of digital media. And they realized that digital rights... There, there was no, uh, no provision for inheriting the digital rights or bequeathing those digital rights. If you bought a song on on iTunes and you die, does your kid own the song? That's certainly by design. And so all of a sudden, but you know, in most cases, when you die and nobody can access your iTunes account, like who cares, boo hoo. But in the case of this recently, this late departed. Uh, Seahawks owner. Seahawks owning Seattle billionaire. Um, he had, I mean, millions and millions and millions of books and films and TV and... He must have just bought stuff compulsively. He doesn't he have did. any more free time than you and I do to watch movies, probably well, he, less. He developed an entire system uh, which was kind of iPad-based but proprietary hardware mm-hmm. where he had these kind of pa- these tablets that you could call up anything you could call up. He wanted to be the library computer of his beloved starship enterprise. That's right. It was just like, uh, I'd like the sheet music to star spangled banner. Boom. There it is. I would like to watch the, you know, like the, uh, Godfather dubbed into Norwegian. Boom. There it is. Are media rights transferable today? Could you get around this by bequeathing them on your deathbed? Could you give them as gifts to the living? So this is the, this is the problem. And my, and my close associate who, uh, who works for, the estate of said late departed billionaire who rhymes with small gallon <laughs> um, uh, has admonished me like by the shirt, grabbed me by the front of my shirt and said, buy physical media. Yeah. Never get rid of a book or a CD or a DVD or anything because they're the only media that are real. And I'm like, DVDs aren't real. When was the last time you saw a DVD player except at Ken Jennings's house? <laughs> and uh, and yet, you know, realer than keeping it in the cloud and then finding that you're not able to to give that to your kids. And of course, cloud media services are never going to allow you to to bequeath to- your Star Wars subscriptions to your kid. It would just end sales. Yeah, if why you would could, they? if you could? get your parents files. So it's, I think a little researched or little thought of uh, consequence of the digitization of everything. Cause but, we're all convinced we're the last generation. Yeah. Right. If you think you're, if you think you're never going to have kids, like you're not worried about your dog getting your, uh, your godfather. And it, it is part of the premise of this show, right? That we are, that we're worried that, um, although the marches of John Philip Sousa are going to make it into the, to the cloud, are the marches of Bill Sousa, his younger brother? His less talented and possibly less existent younger brother? <laughs> Probably not. And that's why the Omnibus Project is here. Uh, I should hook up your friend with, like, uh, Scarecrow Video. She's like a cautionary tale of... Uh, oh, of, no. Of, she's, she's a member of Scarecrow. She's well aware. Yeah, she's fine. 
I mean, she's fine. Well, no, I don't. It's, I don't mean she should be running more videos. I'm just saying they should be leveraging her testimony in their. Uh, oh right. In their marketing. Well, no, I, you know the reason I'm so cautious. I'm not very cautious. I've basically outed her in every other in every respect. Her phone number is two oh six. But you know she still is employed there as a uh, as part of that team. So yeah. I don't want. She's not going to be able to. She still won't tell me three quarters of the things because of some NDA she signed back in the 80s. The NDA said you can only tell your friends a quarter yeah. of, uh, of things about your job. You only, choose which ones. Only tell your uh, only tell people you know the tantalizing bit and then nothing more. Uh, in addition to social media, please email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Tell us one quarter of your secrets. Send us one quarter of your possessions. That's just a tithe you can do. Mm-hmm. To um, we will send you two shoots of a fungus-resistant American elm. Two uh, shoots <laughs> of, of plum juicy raisins. <laughs> you could send those to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. Here's something we got in the mail recently, John. When I showed you the box, you admired that it was actually a um, a civil defense, oh. an authentic civil defense box of the. Uh, I didn't, of the Cold War era. I didn't just admire it. I gasped when I saw it. I, I've never seen you it's so right happy. There. It's right there. As when you saw this authentic civil defense Civil box. defense radiation detection kit box. And you know what the person sent us in that box? What? A civil defense radiation <gasps> detection kit. Oh my god! It's a Geiger counter! I think it's uh, it may be decorative only. No, says, that's uh, a real Geiger counter, is it not? I just don't think it's functioning anymore, according to Jeremy... Uh, who who thinks we should uh, use this to decorate the bunker? Oh, but look at that! So it's got cool. the civil pass, defense I'll logo. Pass it over. You know, my dad was a civil defense oper- uh, officer in the fifties. Well, he would have had one of those. Did he scan you every night when you came home? He did. I wasn't alive in the fifties because I'm not a boomer. What do we got in here? Whoa! You immediately like open up to see its guts. Yeah. Well, there's no. Uh, I wanted to make sure there's no batteries in it, and there aren't. But oh, it smells like the. It smells like an Air Force base in the 1950s inside, which is one of my favorite smells. It smells like the Quonset hut inside my heart. It smells like victory. That's really great. Thank oh, you, my Jeremy. Goodness. Jeremy, that is the one of the greatest. Now, but this is an example of one thing. And you and I, are, I guess we have to keep it in the bunker because neither of us would ever agree to let the other one have it, right? It's true. It's oh, uh, seems, oh, wow. It's got a little door that shuts over the... It shuts over the, the detector thing. Patreon subscribers can see a picture of this beautiful bright yellow artifact on oh. our on our video feed. How awesome um, is this thing? At patreon.com slash omnibus project. Like this door is in here backwards though. We appreciate your donations. Um, you can discuss Dutch Elm disease or pretty much anything else you want with your fellow futurelings. Uh, if if Facebook, Reddit, or Discord still exist in your era, first of all, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But second of all uh, please use it to find other omnibusianados as Was we this refer meant to our to, fans. I feel like somebody might have hit this with a with a paint gun that which shouldn't have been painted here, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, the paint is in really good shape. Do you think it got spruced up at some point? I feel like maybe somebody spray painted parts of it with the spray paint and they didn't close the door on the detector as, this part. Oh, you shouldn't think that, be that shouldn't yellow? be yellow? Maybe that should I don't know. I'm, I, you know, I'm 
been a long time since I built my own but as Geiger some, counter. But as somebody who only wants original Led Zeppelin concert tees, you're you're wary of somebody doing restoration work on your on your new. This is the only one of these I've ever held detector. in my hand, so I'm pretty excited about it. And he also sent us these little laminated Connell Rad in case of attack stickers. Turn your AM radio dial to 640 or 1240, John. That's where uh, that's where you'll hear the latest civil yeah, defense that's updates. So boss. You know, one of us actually has a bomb shelter. It's me. So you're saying you should put that in your bomb shelter? No, no. He, he gave it to us for our, for our bunker. Are you going to turk out your bomb shelter like a bomb shelter? I'm kind of thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, deck it out as a fifties bomb shelter, although I do, but I also kind of want to make it like a contemporary bomb shelter full of all kinds of weird prepper deer camouflage baseball hats and, and, uh, tubes of chewing tobacco. I don't know where you're going to keep your assault rifles otherwise. So, right. Well, I'll tell you what, when the, when the big one hits and you're, knocking on my door gonna have to, you're gonna have to know the passcode there is no way i'm walking to normandy beach <laughs> after the bridges collapse to, to ask for your uh, dried meats there's a there's a 30 percent chance that you'd be at the house anyway <laughs> <laughs> a 30 percent chance only if the world ends on a wednesday i guess future links from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We may be communicating with you from the very distant past or from the recently distant past. One of the distant passes. Pasts. Not passes. Pastuses. Pastuses. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>